0: Where do monsters come from? Is there something about the human condition that makes us create monsters in the face of not knowing? Does it help us somehow to create a physical manifestation for that which threatens and frightens us? Even when that thing is not visible to the naked eye? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't believe in vampires, but doesn't blame people living in the before times in New England for believing in them. Some invisible force seemed to be draining the life out of good, common, everyday folk. At a time when so little was understood about the way the human body worked, is it any wonder that people, terrified of the massive numbers of people dying around them, would have come up with a monster to try to explain it away? Also, I still pull the covers up very high around my neck when I go to bed at night. Today, we'll learn the story of the Great Vampire Panic of New England and how it affected one tuberculosis-addled family, the Brown family of Exeter, Rhode Island. But before we head there, let's stay in the present for a moment. Strangers, congratulations. We have, so far, survived the greatest plague of this century. So far. Confident proclamations from our president notwithstanding, the pandemic isn't actually over. But it seems for now we've learned how to live with it, and hopefully the worst of it is behind us. Hopefully. And while some red-hatted members of our society cried plandemic because certain authorities had warned that a plague was inevitable, given the way we all live today, it really was true that anyone with half a brain could see that we were headed for disaster. We do, after all, have a handful of plagues from our relatively recent past to look to to give us clues as to why, how, and when a new one might strike." As for COVID, circumstances were ripe for enterprising little viruses to make hay in our globalized agricultural system, packed urban areas, and super-speed world travel. Even with as much as we know now about viruses and all the microscopic things that cause disease, somehow, some among us couldn't help but conjure up a monster to blame for the pain we were all in because of COVID. We should know better. The folks of mid-19th century New England, many of them simple farmers and laborers without much of a basic education, let alone our modern-day understanding of how the world works, can hardly be blamed for trying to find the monster behind the mysterious and awful deaths taking place around them. These days, we tend to brush tuberculosis off as mainly a relic of the past. It conjures up images of ladies with Victorian hairdos sitting on deck chairs on porches, all bundled up, trying to get the prescribed fresh air the doctors were sure would cure them. Could you imagine today someone believing that all you needed was some fresh air or sunshine to cure a virus? In cramped apartment buildings at the time, where fresh air was a luxury— There were wrought iron cages built jutting out from windows hundreds of feet up in the air to allow the infected to sleep at least partially outside. But in its day, TB was not quaint or remotely funny. TB caused weakness, weight loss, fever, night sweats, coughing, chest pain, coughing up blood, and in a staggering majority of TB patients, death. By the late 19th century, 70 to 90% of the populations of Europe and North America were infected with TB, and 80% of those people died from it. So many people had died from TB that according to PBS, by the beginning of the 19th century, one in seven of the people who had ever lived died from TB. It took me a while to wrap my head around that statistic. So by the year 1800, there had been approximately 100 billion humans over the course of humankind. TB had killed 7 billion people. Wait, that can't be right, can it? I checked over at the CDC and they say that between 1600 and 1800, TB had caused 25% of the deaths in Europe. And the numbers were much the same in North America. So it's a lot of people. TB is fucking deadly. ¶¶ Thanks to the miracle of science, we now have vaccines that prevent TB. And in 2019, only 526 people in the United States died from a TB infection. However, 1.6 million people died of TB globally in 2021, mostly in poorer countries where public health crises, including poverty, are ignored or under-resourced. But, back before microscopes, people didn't know what the hell was causing this awful sickness and so much death. And inevitably, when a sickness swept through a community with such devastating consequences, fingers began pointing and accusations flew as terrified people, desperate to find a culprit, tried to put a face to the invisible monster claiming so many of their loved ones. In this spirit of things, TB was thought to be hereditary and not contagious, which is a wild idea, but there you are. Again, people were like, what is germs? Surely you mean evil spirits. According to Curiosity Collections at the Harvard Library website, quote, "...tuberculosis was also considered to be a sign of poverty or an inevitable outcome of the process of industrial civilization." about 40% of working class deaths in cities were from tuberculosis, end quote. And you know, they were right, ish. The cramped and truly unsanitary conditions in which most city dwellers lived was a breeding ground for infectious disease. Of course their thinking was backwards, Poor people have bad genes and therefore pass down things like tuberculosis through the generations. As opposed to, people who live in poverty are subject to conditions that lead to disease. In 1882, German physician and bacteriologist Robert Koch identified the tuberculosis bacterium, to which most people were like, um, okay, now what? They wouldn't come up with a treatment for it for another 60 years, and people still didn't understand that bacteria could spread from one person to the next. In 1892, medical professionals were still blaming tuberculosis on drunkenness and poverty. According to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, it was a terrible end, often drawn out over years. A skyrocketing fever, a hacking, bloody cough, and a visible wasting away of the body. The emaciated figure strikes one with terror, reads one 18th-century description, The forehead covered with drops of sweat, the cheeks painted with a livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the breath offensive, quick and laborious, and the cough so incessant as to scarce allow the wretched sufferer time to tell his complaints. End quote. Cures for TB in the 19th century, in addition to lots of fresh air and sunshine, were drinking brown sugar dissolved in water and frequent horseback riding. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess they weren't offering free pony rides to the hundreds of sick children living in poverty. But of course, it wasn't just people in cramped urban areas who were getting sick and dying from TB. The virus, as viruses are wont to do, had made its way out into all the various nooks and crannies of whatever continent it was ravishing. One such nook was Exeter, Rhode Island, located in the southern part of the tiny state with a population of just around 1,500 in the mid-1800s. For some reason, Exeter was one of the towns in Rhode Island referred to as one of the border towns, which, I mean, sure, part of it borders Connecticut, but, like, Rhode Island is so small that every town pretty much borders another state. But also, having lived in Rhode Island for a whopping handful of months now, I have learned that Rhode Islanders are hyper-local and kinda judgy about any town that isn't Providence. It's the only state I know of where you can drive 20 minutes in any direction and be out of the state, but where some people still somehow boast about never having left Rhode Island. Meanwhile, Providence is literally less than 30 miles from Exeter. When you live in a microscopic state, I guess local pride is taken to an extreme? I don't know. Anyway, Exeter was a farming community, even though, as Sheila Reynolds Boothroyd, president of the Exeter Historical Association, put it, the land was, quote, rocks, rocks, and more rocks, end quote. As a farming town, it was already sparsely populated, but from about 1830 to 1910, its population got more and more sparse. While TB was killing about a quarter of the population of New England, one Exeter family's odds proved to be far worse. George and Mary Elizabeth Brown had an approximately 30-acre farm in Exeter upon that rocky and fertile land. So I'm guessing it probably wasn't, like, a super fun farm with, like, pick your fall apples and pumpkins and chop your own Christmas tree and, like, hay rides and shit. It was probably a pretty depressing farm with just your basic grains and oats and other depressing crops as such. George and Mary Eliza had seven children between 1864 and 1881. Only one of them would live to see full adulthood. Mary Eliza was the first of the Brown family to come down with TB in 1882. She died the next year on December 8, 1883. The following spring of 1884, 20-year-old Mary Olive, the eldest Brown child, died from the disease. According to the Rhode Island Historical Society, quote, she complained of fearful dreams and a crushing weight which drew the life out of her as she slept. She grew paler and more gaunt each night until on June 6, 1884, she joined her mother in eternal rest, end quote. A local paper published her obituary, which included this, quote, The last few hours she lived was a great suffering, yet her faith was firm and she was ready for the change, end quote. And apparently, the whole town showed up for her funeral and sang a hymn she had picked out herself. Of course, the whole town only consisted of about 1,300 people, but that's still a lot of people to show up at your funeral. I'll be lucky if I get a half dozen people mourning my death, and that will be with a free bar and all-you-can-eat cheese and shrimp. Anyway... About five years went by without another member of the Brown family coming down with TB. And while I'm sure the Browns were unaware of the statistic that TB was claiming a quarter of the population, it had, by that point, taken a quarter of the Brown family. So statistically speaking, the rest of them were in the clear. But we're only about a quarter of the way through this episode, so you know they weren't. In 1899, the second eldest brown child and only boy, Edwin, fell sick with the dreaded disease. Somehow, Edwin could afford to go to Colorado Springs to convalesce in a sanatorium. Between the train ticket to get there and the cost of the stay and treatment, it couldn't have been cheap. Then again, after watching your mother and big sister waste away and die from TB, I would imagine one might spend big for a cure. Colorado Springs was considered the perfect place to heal from tuberculosis because of the dry, cold air. Consequently, by the time Edwin arrived seeking treatment, it's estimated that a full third of the population there was infected with TB, and a full zero percent were cured by dry, cold air. While Edwin was away convalescing, or really not convalescing at all, but just chilling with a highly contagious and deadly disease somewhere else, his younger sister, 19-year-old Mercy Lena, the middle of the Brown children, fell ill. She died in January 1892, within a couple months of becoming sick, and it was thought she had galloping TB, which was a rather equine way of saying she was probably asymptomatic. It's possible she gave TB to her family, though where she would have picked it up on her own, no one knows. Her mother died when Mercy was only five, so it's hard to imagine. I suppose the diagnosis that she'd been asymptomatic was arrived at simply because of how quickly she died after first showing signs of the disease. For some reason, the local paper which had given her older sister Mary Olive such a lovely obituary was either running out of ink or patience because Mercy's obit only read, quote, Miss Lena Brown, who has been suffering from consumption, died Sunday morning, end quote. Honestly, so many people had probably died of one thing or the other, but mostly TB, that the obituary guy was probably like, look, I've run out of flowery euphemisms for she died. I have to get home. My wife has been coughing up blood for days. So by 1892, George Brown had lost his wife and two of his seven children while the third was ill. And sure, that's a lot of casseroles and bagel platters, but can you imagine the grief? And now that I mention it, I don't think Mr. Brown's neighbors were hurrying over with casseroles and bagel platters. Maybe after his wife died. Jesus, the number of casseroles that single women brought over to our house after my mother died. We were eating casserole for months. But once his children started dropping like flies, apparently George Brown's neighbors were like, What the fuck is going on over at the Brown farm? The local doctor was like, It's
1: consumption.
0: But they were like, Sir, I don't know where you get your information, but I've done, like, a lot of research. Meaning they looked at whatever the 19th century equivalent of Facebook was. And I happened to know that these people were killed by a vampire.
1: And the local doctor was like, No, no, it's literally just consumption.
0: And they were just like, Just because you have a fancy degree doesn't mean you know more than we do.
1: And he was like, Um, actually, that is what that means.
0: And they were like, That's fake news. They were murdered by a vampire, and that vampire was definitely one of the brown children. So, the townspeople in Exeter were gathering at the local pub with their pitchforks and torches singing a rousing chorus of Kill the Beast, while George Brown had barely wiped the dirt from his hands after burying his wife and two daughters. And while I'm sure Brown was pretty annoyed, to say the least, at these awful accusations, one could understand the nature of his neighbors' fears. Long before Bram Stoker would pen his famous vampire novel Dracula in 1897, about a hot young Gary Oldman who is inexplicably in love with Winona Ryder, who speaks with a terrible British accent, and is only out bad accented by her fiance, Keanu Reeves, who's like, Whoa, you're a vampire, dude. Honestly, it makes no sense. Where was I? Oh, right, Bram Stoker. So, long before him, way back in 1732, this account was published in the London Journal.
1: Mr. Danvers tells of a conversation he had about a certain prodigy mentioned in the newspapers of March last viz. that in the village of Medregia in Hungary, certain dead bodies called their vampires had killed several persons by sucking out all their blood. That Arnold Paul, an hey-duke, having killed four persons after he was dead, his body was taken up forty days after, which bled at the nose, mouth, and ears. That, according to custom, they drove a stake through his heart, at which he gave horrid groan and lost a great deal of blood. And that all such as have been tormented or killed by vampires become vampires when they are dead.
0: And even earlier than that, according to the Online Etymology Dictionary, back in 1100, there were scattered accounts across England of, quote, night-walking, blood-gorged, plague-spreading undead corpses, end quote. Needless to say, warnings of vampires stretch far back into European history, in place of actual understanding of disease and, well, bodies in general. So, it turns out that the human body, or really any animal body, leaks blood from its various orifices during decomposition. According to authors Paul S. Sledzik and Nicholas Bellantoni, in a paper they published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology in 1994, titled, Bioarchaeological and Biocultural Evidence for the New England Vampire Folk Belief, or How to Make a Super Cool Topic Like Vampires Super Boring. Am I right, guys? Just kidding. I added that subtitle myself. European peasants in the 18th century, quote, believed that the appearance of the vampire in the grave, i.e. bloated chest, long fingernails, and blood draining from the mouth, meant that the vampire was draining life from the living, end quote. Why they were digging up pretty fresh corpses is anyone's guess. Maybe they were like, wait, let's check his pockets for loose change before we bury him. I don't know. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, In Vampires, Burials, and Deaths, folklorist Paul Barber dissects the logic behind vampire myths, which he believes originally arose from unschooled but astute observations of decay. Bloated dead bodies appear as if they have recently eaten. A staked corpse screams due to the escape of natural gases, etc. End quote. A staked corpse corpse screams. And now, so do I, eternally, on the inside. And so, when large numbers of people were dying from diseases that no one understood, naturally, everyone went around digging up corpses, probably without gloves and definitely without any masks on, and stabbed the already dead corpses as a way of stopping the spread of the disease, most definitely contracting said disease at the same time, if they didn't already have it. I can already hear some of you now getting upset at me for making fun of these people. Please, don't worry about them. They're dead. Some of them are extra dead, having been dug up and killed again after they were already dead. So they're okay. I mean, they're not. They're dead. But, you know, their feelings can't get hurt. Anyway. As those European peasants migrated to North America, so did their belief in vampires. While the city folk seemed convinced that consumption came from being drunk and poor, the country folk were like, ''It was them, they vampires!'' So much so that according to the Smithsonian Magazine, by 1784, a councilman in Connecticut sent a letter to the editor of the Connecticut Current and Weekly Intelligencer warning people of...
1: A certain quack doctor, a foreigner, who had urged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption. Holmes had witnessed several children disinterred at the doctor's request and wanted no more of it. Quote and that the bodies of the dead may rest quiet in their graves without such interruption. I think the public ought to be aware of being led away by such an imposture.
0: Despite these warnings, however, people continued to believe their loved ones had become vampires and were exhuming graves all over the place to put a stop to it. But according to the Smithsonian Magazine, despite how relatively small New England is, the method for killing the already dead corpses varied from place to place. Quote, some communities in Maine and Plymouth, Massachusetts, opted to simply flip the exhumed vampire face down in the grave and leave it at that. In Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, though, they frequently burned the dead person's heart, sometimes inhaling the smoke as a cure. In Europe, too, exhumation protocol varied with region. Some beheaded suspected vampire corpses, while others bound their feet with thorns. Often these rituals were clandestine, lantern-lit affairs, but particularly in Vermont, they could be quite public, even festive. One vampire heart was reportedly torched on the Woodstock, Vermont town green in 1830, end quote. Fun for the whole family! So, the combination of the absolutely devastating death toll from TB and the belief that undead corpses were the cause and the spread of disease and death created what is now known as the Great New England Vampire Panic. Rhode Island folklorist Michael Bell, who, according to Smithsonian Magazine, spent the better part of the 2000s studying New England vampire exhumations, believes there may have been hundreds of panicked exhumations in New England in the 18th and 19th centuries. So it's understandable why George Brown's neighbors had convinced themselves that a vampire was to blame for the three deaths in his one family. As if he didn't have enough to worry about, what with everyone he loved withering and dying around him, his rocky, infertile soil, not to mention all those damned casseroles sitting in the freezer. And obviously, Brown's neighbors thought the most likely culprit was the most recently dead Brown victim, namely 19-year-old Mercy Brown. About six weeks after Mercy died, her brother Edwin returned from the sanatorium in Colorado Springs. Sadly, after 18 months away, the dry, cold air of Colorado had done nothing to cure him of TB, and he was still having trouble breathing, coughing up blood, and now he was homesick on top of all that. Plus, he had missed the death of his little sister, who, he was now being informed by his neighbors, was likely a vampire who needed to be exhumed. George Brown, by that point, was having no part of the vampire Michigas. On March 19, 1892, the Providence Journal published a piece about George Brown's woes. During the few weeks past, Mr. Brown has been besieged on all sides by a number of people who expressed implicit faith in the old theory that by some unexplained and unreasonable way in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be bound, which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health. Mr. Brown, having no confidence in the old-time theory, and also getting no encouragement from the medical fraternity, did not yield to their importunities until Thursday afternoon when an investigation was held under discretion of Harold Metcalf, M.D. of Wickford. End quote. And so, on March 17, 1892, a group of men, including Dr. Harold Metcalf, dug up matriarch Mary Eliza and her firstborn Mary Olive, both of whom had been dead for a decade by that point. This might come as a shock, stranger, but what the men found in those graves were... bones. I know! Plot twist! The group was like, okay, so obviously these two aren't vampires, but what about this other one? And they dug up Mercy's grave. According to the Providence Journal, quote, After examination of the body of M. Lena, who was buried nine weeks ago, Dr. Metcalf reports the body in a state of natural decomposition with nothing exceptional existing. When the doctor removed the heart and liver from the body, a quantity of blood dripped therefrom. But this, he said, just what be expected from a similar examination of almost any person after the same length of time from deceased. End quote. Dr. Metcalf was like, this is perfectly normal, people. After all, Mercy had only died nine weeks prior and she was buried in the freezing New England ground in winter. Basically, she had been in cold storage for a couple of months. But of course, the people were like, oh, hell no. And according to the History Channel website, quote... "'Knowing that medicine had done nothing to save the Browns, "'the people of Exeter ignored the doctor's proclamations "'and took the presence of fresh blood in Mercy's heart "'as a sign that she was undead. "'They gathered firewood and kindled a bonfire "'on a pile of nearby rocks. "'Then they cut out Mercy's heart and lungs "'and cremated them on the pyre. "'They returned to Edwin Brown's house "'with the ashes of his dead sister's heart "'and mixed them with water. "'Edwin, consumed the concoction, end quote. I'm sorry, can we just pause here for a moment? Just that scene? They cut this poor girl's organs out, cremated them, and then made her brother drink them? What? As my dear departed and definitely not a vampire grandmother used to say, holy hat. And wouldn't you know, the slurry of water and the ashes of his dead sister did not cure Edwin. He died of TB two months later. The coverage of this whole fakakta nonsense by the Providence Journal attracted a good deal of attention, and pretty soon, well-known anthropologist George Stetson, not to be confused with well-known employee of the Spacely Space Rockets Company, George Jetson, traveled to Exeter to find out what in the holy hell was going on. He published his findings in the American Anthropological Journal in a piece called The Animistic Vampire in New England, which was less about Mercy Brown in particular and more about the general spread of vampire superstition in New England as shown in part by the Mercy Brown incident. Stetson's paper made serious waves, with some blaming modern-day fiction on fanning the flames of New England neuroticism, and others being too unwilling to believe that anyone would actually believe in stuff, and that the New England farmers had actually just been having a laugh at Stetson's expense. Like this newfangled, highfalutin intellectual type came a-poking around the backwaters of New England looking to write some fancy paper about this barbaric vampire suspicion he'd heard of, and the locals all just played along to make him look like an idiot. A writer for the London Post was like, Don't try to blame Europeans for this shite. This is a uniquely Yankee problem. You can have your weird vampire suspicions and that ridiculous sport you call baseball, and leave us cultured Europeans with our lack of proper dental hygiene and our food like blood pudding and bangers and mash and spotted dick out of it, thank you very much, even though most New Englanders were only removed from Europe by one generation at that point. And a writer for the Boston Globe wrote, Perhaps the frequent intermarriage of families in these backcountry districts may partially account for some of their characteristics. Yikes, dude. But then again, Rhode Islanders and Bostonians have never really seen eye to eye. Rhode Islanders call Bostonians massholes, and Bostonians just think of Rhode Island as a suburb of Boston, so... Some believe that Mercy's story inspired aspiring London novelist Bram Stoker's character of Lucy in his novel Dracula because Lucy was a rather wilting and withering, some might say, consumptive young woman. Stoker's theater company had been touring the U.S. when the whole hullabaloo with Mercy's poor corpse took place, and it's likely he saw news coverage of it. That said, considering the staggering number of people who had TB, Lucy could have been inspired by any one of millions of young women. The story of what happened to the Brown family is tragic, to be sure. The exhumation and desecration of Mercy's body is the least of it. For her part, she was already dead at that point, so no real harm or foul was done to her. But her body was tampered with barbarically after being laid to rest by her grieving father. The end of her story was hijacked in this way. There was the horrendous loss suffered by the whole family as one by one they all contracted this terrifying, invisible, mysterious illness that no one knew how to stop or fix and then died. And usually the telling of the Mercy Brown incident ends with the death of poor Edwin shortly after he was forced to cannibalize his own sister. But the tragedy doesn't actually end there. Three years after losing Edwin and Mercy, George Brown, who had by then also lost his wife and firstborn child, lost his daughters Annie and Jenny to TB within two months of each other. Then, four years after that, in 1899, Myra Frances Brown, George's youngest child, died of TB at 18 years old. In the end, George was left with only one surviving child, Hattie. So, it turns out, putting a terrible face to your fears can't protect you from them after all. We can call a disease by any name we want, but the weaknesses in our biology will ultimately succumb to what they will. But maybe, when we give life to a monstrous legend in an effort to personify it, it gives us a feeling of power over that which has rendered us powerless. But that feeling is just that a feeling. And reality doesn't always answer to feelings. So maybe the people of New England couldn't end consumption by burning the hearts of its victims. But maybe the knowledge that their loved ones died as they stood by, unable to help, was too much. Maybe Mercy Brown gave more than her life. Maybe she gave survivors something to fight against and a way, however ultimately fruitless, to fight against it. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. It's weird enough when anyone goes missing without a trace, but when an actor who's been in multiple movies and TV shows just vanishes into thin air, it's epically weird. We'll retrace the final steps of actor Joseph Pickler and try to make sense of his disappearance. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of The Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at pod, And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation.